It's the 6th of August, 2016, and this is episode 304. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin Live. This is a special edition of LTB. We're going to be talking about Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, the hard fork, consensus, and immutability. Your three hosts for today, uh, myself, Andreas Antonopoulos, we have Stephanie Murphy. Hello. And slightly delayed because of technical difficulties, we will soon have Adam Levine joining us in just a few minutes. Later on in the show, we have a three uh, esteemed guests from the Ethereum community who will be able to give us different perspectives. Martin Koppelman, Anthony Diorio, and Charles Hoskinson will be joining us in about 25 minutes, um, and we're going to have a lively debate and discussion about Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic. So, um, Stephanie, have you been watching all of this drama in Ethereum? What are your thoughts? Well, I've had some personal stuff going on and I have enough drama in my life, so I haven't been following it very closely, but it's it's kind of hard to ignore. It's also hard to completely keep up with because there's just so much happening. But, you know, from what from my basic understanding, there was a hard fork of the Ethereum blockchain. Now there's Ethereum Classic, which is the original Ethereum, and uh, ETH, which is the, the forked version. And there's these now two chains that are kind of competing against each other. And the reason for the hard fork was to kind of undo the damage from the, the DAO failure that we've talked about uh, a couple of times on the show so far. How close am I, Andreas? Do you want to give a bird's eye view? Yeah, the, I mean, that's, a, that's exactly what has happened. Um, so the international symbol for fork is this one. Um, <laughs> also, on Vulcan, it means something different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this means that uh, both forks live long and prosper. <laughs> and so what we saw was on July 20th, in the morning, I believe, of July 20th, Ethereum executed a hard fork. This had been planned for maybe three weeks in advance um, after a previous attempt to do a soft fork. Uh, a hard fork was executed. And the hard fork... Um, Basically, what it did is it reconfigured um, the majority of Ethereum clients, nodes, and miners to sweep the balance of all contracts that were related to the DAO, uh, the parents' DAO, all of the children' DAOs, the extra balance, and the attacker DAO or multiple DAOs that had been compromised by the attacker. All of that, um, the white hats. Um, DAO that had tried to siphon from the attacker's DAO, but then had its own fund siphoned from the white hat DAO, all of that got swept into a new contract, uh, which I call the refund DAO. Uh, and the, the refund DAO, very, very simple contract, uh, its only purpose is to refund the DAO tokens. Um, full disclosure, I had uh, 40 US dollars or 400 DAO tokens approximate value in the DAO so that I could participate. And I executed a refund uh, on the refund DAO on the post hard fork chain and got my four ETH, my four Ether back. So this all happened July 20th. And um, now the expectation was 
that uh, since the vast majority, more than 90% of the hashing power was uh, committed to uh, going forward with a hard fork and refunding the DAO, that that chain would dominate. That didn't quite play out. Within a couple of days, it became evident that some uh, miners were holdouts. They were continuing to mine uh, the old chain, um, quite deliberately so. And uh, well, we saw something very interesting. The hash rate on the old chain started rising as more miners committed hashing power to the old chain and or the traditional chain or classic as it became known. And um, I think three days into it, one of the exchanges decided after seeing a lot of activity um, and a secondary market, mostly over the counter trading of this Ethereum Classic, uh, decided to list it. And Ethereum Classic was listed on Poloniex, I believe on July 23rd, uh, several other exchanges joined in and more hashing power got added. As of yesterday, uh, Ethereum Classic or ETC had about a third, 28.5% of the hashing power of Ethereum post hard fork, Ethereum HF or ETH, and, um, and about 30% of the value. So the value tracked really close to uh, the actual hash rate. And there was furious activity. Uh, in fact, at some point yesterday, we saw a huge rise of Classic, a big drop in Ethereum, and um, the volume of trading in both chains was very, very high, unusually high. Never seen anything like it in Ethereum. And at some point, Ethereum Classic's trading volume was, was higher than uh, the Ethereum chain's volume. So that's what happened yesterday. And today we saw a bit of a reversal. Um, I can look at the statistics now, but we saw, um, let's see, we saw uh, Ethereum Classic drop a bit today and Ethereum rise. So as of now, in the last 24 hours, Classic is now down 22% and Ethereum is up 13%. So that trend has reversed. And here we are. So that's interesting. There, it appears they're kind of duking it out against each other, these two competing chains. But meanwhile, there's a lot of um, companies, like I know Anthony with uh, Jack's Wallet, for example, that have to decide what to do about this with their software that uses Ethereum or with their apps for Ethereum. Um, and well, not necessarily. Well, yes, in some cases, yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, also exchanges, too, that have to decide what, like, for instance, Coinbase just added Ethereum, I guess, right, just recently. Um, and they, you know, every exchange that uh, that trades Ethereum has to make a decision about this too. So I can imagine it's confusing not just for the users, but also for, um, for businesses that are trying to uh, come to a decision about what to do about this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a bit about what it means to have uh, two forks. Uh, two different chains that have a common ancestor. So up to a specific block, the two chains are identical, right? Um, the fork happened on July 20th. Every transaction, every block, everything before July 20th is identical. The two systems diverge on July 20th. And the, what's the primary difference? 
Um, in fact, the, the one way to test and know which chain you're on, and you can even write a contract that can determine which chain it's on, is to check the DAO contract. If the DAO contract still has a balance, uh, you're on the old chain. If the DAO contract has no balance or, or the refund DAO has a balance, then you're on the new chain. And so um, it, you can actually write a contract that can execute only on one chain or only on the other chain. But for the most part, uh, most contracts are on both chains. Um, they execute on both chains. Everyone who had coins uh, that were on the original Ethereum chain up to July 20th on, on in the evening of July 20th had coins on both chains. And this is where things get a bit complicated. So did you actually have any um, Ether at all, Stephanie? No, I have zero ether. I never had any DAO tokens. I've become I've I've not gotten involved at all. Um, okay. Very so good. I've just been watching this from the outside. Yeah, I like your full disclosure there. Um and I'm glad you got that 40 bucks back of uh <laughs> of DAO. Yeah, for ether. Um and, and I also uh to further the disclosure, I also sold uh my ether and my ether classic after the fork. Uh, and I don't actually hold any Ether or Classic at the moment. Mm, okay. Risk averse here. I do not like 30 plus percent per day volatility. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for you, correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason you got interested in it in the first place was to, you know, to play with it and to try writing contracts and to try using Ethereum. So that's correct. Uh, you were not like doing it as an investment, but. Um, no, you know, but I did, I did write my own split contract and tried to execute that with mixed success. It didn't work the first couple of times I tried it. Um, so I had to, the experience of trying to write a contract that understands which chain it's on and, and splits appropriately. What is a split contract? So here's the, here's the thing, then, and this is where things get really complicated. If you have Ethereum before July 20th, then after July 20th, you have Ethereum and you have Classic, and it's in the same address, effectively. It's the balance corresponds to the same address or the same contract address. Now, if you then try to move it, right? Let's say you run a client and you're running a client on the new um, Ethereum chain, and you make a transaction to send your Ether from one address A to address B. Now, if you're running this on the new chain, you would expect that your Ether on the new chain would move to address B, and your Ethereum Classic on the old chain would remain in address A. But that's not exactly what happens. A lot of clients, whether deliberately or inadvertently, um, are basically uh, relaying transactions, and because the transactions look identical, whether you're on the old chain or the new chain, you have what's known as a replay. Um, so if you make a transaction to move Ethereum from A to B on the new chain, and that transaction is replayed, then guess what? Your Ethereum Classic moves from address A to address B on the old chain too. So it seems like um, it becomes quite difficult to isolate the effects from the two chains. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, I'm so confused. <laughs> but you explained it fine, Andres. It's just it's it takes some uh, it takes some work to understand how this uh, how this all goes down. And yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people posting online that they were really confused. Like, if they're getting a refund, are they getting refund of the are they getting a refund of ETH or ETC? Or they didn't know what was going on. Well, if you're getting a refund, you're using the refund DAO, and that only exists on the new chain because it's the result of the hard fork sweeping all of the ether. In the classic chain, the DAO attacker has the 50-some million dollars worth of classic ether, and they get to keep it. In the new chain, the, the money got swept into the refund, uh, refund DAO, and... DAO token holders are able to withdraw and get a refund on their DAO, and so they get a refund in ETH. That ETH does not exist on the old chain also as ETC, because in the old chain, the attacker has it. So, um, yes, it's a bit confusing. And But if you, if you just had normal Ether on the chain before July 20th, after July 20th, you have the same amount. Say you had 10 Ether before, now you have 10 Ether on the new chain and 10 Classic on the old chain. Um, but the problem is if you try to do transactions on either chain, uh, those transactions usually get replayed. So what happens on one chain gets mirrored on the other. And this is where a split contract comes in. So with a split contract, what you do is you create a break so that um, you force uh, your Ether to move to a different address than your Classic so that you can control the two independently without uh, having this replay effect. So you essentially split the control. And the way you do that is a contract that knows which chain it's on and does a different thing if it's on uh, the classic chain and a different thing if it's on the new chain. Um, and by splitting that effect on one transaction, from that moment on, those uh, those coins on the old and new chain follow different paths and have a different future. So that allows you then to exert control over one chain or another without having a replay risk. Okay. Well, we have our three guests here. Um, uh, how about we bring them in? Yeah, let's bring them in. All right, fantastic. Um, let me bring in first Mr. Martin Kobelman here. Let's see. Martin, you're with us if you unmute. Hey. Can you hear us here? Hey, Amy. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Our next guest, Mr. Anthony Diorio. Anthony, you are live and in the show. I'm unmuted now. There hey, guys. Glad to be here. Welcome, Anthony. Good to see you again. And last but not least, Mr. Charles Hoskinson. Hi, guys. Great to hear it from you. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. I understand it's uh, it's quite late where you are. Uh, thanks for taking the time to do this at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I'm right now in um, Osaka, Japan. So uh, let's let's try to get it wrapped up by like 4 a.m. or something like we'll, that. We'll try. We'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely try. Wow. So, That's dedication. <laughs> well, I, I got a life-size Mario here with me, so we should be okay. Oh, yeah, very good. Yeah, everything's okay when you get Mario. <laughs> so, All right, um, so should we say... Yeah, go oh, ahead. No, you go ahead, Stephanie. Should we say... So we, we meant to sort of structure this as... 
a debate, you know, a friendly debate, but just um, people with different points of view about um, Ethereum Classic versus ETH versus the two kind of coexisting together. And we have one person that's representing uh, sort of each viewpoint. And um, yeah, and Andreas is going to be the moderator asking questions and then we'll sort of give everybody a chance to respond. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good uh, good approach. Um, why don't we start with uh, Martin? Uh, and Martin, if I understand it correctly, you are supporting the hard fork and the evolution of Ethereum into the new chain where the DAO got refunded. Um, yes. Very good. And you see that as the way forward. Can you tell us a bit about your perspective? Yeah. So, so my perspective is there are two two big questions that we might discuss today. So the one question is, um, was the fork um, the right decision? And the other question is, now given that there is a fork, um, should we have one community or should we uh, divide uh, the, the community? Um, and yeah, my, my opinion is, so on, on the fork decision, I am, I, I have been pro the fork, but I'm not, um, kind of super extreme pro the fork. I mean, I see the arguments for both sides. I can totally make the argument for the fork. Um, I think it was just a pragmatical thing to do, uh, just a way to move forward to uh, concentrate again on actually building stuff instead of having a years, maybe spending years with with uh, with this attack and and um, an attacker owning 15% of all uh, ether. So. That's topic one. And topic two, in my opinion, is now that we have the fork, um, should we have two, two communities or one? And I see, at this point, huge benefits of having one community. Um, so uh, Ethereum is about network effects. It's about having all those dApps that nicely work together because they are on the same singleton. They are on the same world computer, the Ethereum network. and and currently, we only have those network effects if they are on the same chain. Maybe in five, four, four or five years, we can have or we can have kind of dApps that work cross chains. But I think at this point, it's way better to, to concentrate on one chain. Very good. So that's the uh, pro Ethereum, uh, pro single community perspective. I'll go to the other extreme first. Uh, Charles, it seems that you are the guest who believes that classic uh, Ethereum as it was, uh, pro-immutability, if you like, is your position. Is that correct? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm kind of in an interesting position because I was one of the founders of the Ethereum project, and what initially attracted me to Ethereum was the social contract of having this world computer where the code is basically law. It runs as written. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people were really excited about that kind of a prospect. If you look at Ethereum as a, as a system, it's a terribly inefficient computer. It's a very expensive computer, and uh, it's probably the most expensive ever built relative to its peers. And there's certainly better models to do distributed computing with. So the saving grace of the system has always been that you can write code that regardless of who it's inconvenient to or the consequences of that code, you have a safe place where you're able to run that code without fear of censorship. So that was the initial social contract. That's what I signed up for. Obviously, I left the Ethereum community um, about uh, June of 2014, and I went on to do other things. Uh, but when the fork occurred, 
it really got me angry. And it got a lot of other people in the community very angry. And um, the people who created Ethereum Classic, I think what they were first trying to do was at least a protest, saying that you can't quite do this to the community. You can't quite just change the social contract and say this is pragmatism. This has never been done in Bitcoin. You, you have to accept that not everybody's going to go along with your vision, and you're now effectively walking away from a meaningful percentage of your community. So that's, uh, I think, from my view, from the time I've spent in the Ethereum Classic community, the, uh, the viewpoint that most of them enjoy, but not all of them. Actually, there's a lot of new people entering the space, um, especially from the Bitcoin world, who are attracted to this like, fanatical loyalty to immutability. Charles, let me ask you, um, just before the hard fork was executed, there were some attempts to gauge um, the interest of the community. Now, I, I will say that in my eyes, those attempts were, were not um, very robust. The voting that did happen was in, in a few selected forms where not everybody had access, not everybody knew how to vote, and there wasn't really enough time. A lot of this happened under enormous pressure. Do you think that um, these votes or the sentiment that was shown on places like Reddit and um, Carbon Vote, I think it was called, right. um, do you think those represented the mix of opinions? Because uh, at the time it was looking somewhere between 80-20 and 90-10 pro-4. Do you think that was misrepresentative? Well, it's hard to say. I, I mean, you have empirical data based upon the hash rate participation and the market value of Ethereum Classic that there's certainly a community that did not accept it. The second thing is that, you know, a vacuous vote where there's no value or risk behind the vote is not, in my view, as strong as doing something like an assurance contract that's a proof of burn to a new chain, for example. You know, there's there were other options to try to gauge community support and participation than just a, a single vote. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing is that uh, I think the debate has been misconstrued a bit. And the Ethereum side, a lot of people say, oh, it's anti-fork versus pro-fork. And everybody in the Ethereum Classic community is against forks in all cases. I think it's more of what was the social contract of Ethereum? And if you want to change that social contract, what is the proper course of action to do that? I think a single vote where there's no stake behind it and no cost behind that vote is probably not the best way of doing it. You need to do something a bit more extreme, like advocate some sort of threshold proof of burn smart contract or something like that. Because at the very least, then you guarantee 100% of the people in the new chain agree with exactly what you said. And they've actually put money on the line, value on the line, as opposed to just saying, hey, let's just do an opinion poll and see where people sit. Uh, and then just uh, push through a change, which may or may not be representative of the will of the communi community. I think everyone in the Ethereum community agrees that we need better tools uh, for governance. I mean, it was just, it was just, uh, there was time pressure, so we tried uh, within weeks everything that was possible. And it was not only vote, as it was not only this carbon vote. There was a different voting mechanism. There was voting mechanism for miners. Um, there have been forums, discussions. Totally not saying that's perfect, but um, that was just as good as we we got it there. Well, so Martin, uh, the end result of that right now is that if you look at the minor vote um, and you look at that 10 days after the fork, um, mm -hmm. the actual result was at some point yesterday was closer to 70-30 in terms of the hashing rate. But before we go into a back and forth debate on that issue, I would like to bring in Anthony. Um, Anthony, you, you said you were comfortable 
with both chains coexisting and you see a, a possibility of having this kind of multi-coin, uh, multi-Ethereum world. You're muted, we can't hear you. <laughs> or your uh, microphone stopped working. You might want to switch. There we go. No? Anthony? No, we can't hear you. Unfortunately, your microphone isn't working. Fantastic. This is a um, live show. You're now muted. Now you're unmuted. Still not working. Maybe you should unplug and replug your microphone. We'll try and bring Adam back in. He's now online again. This is fantastic. Live radio, folks. Or video. Live, live video, radio, TV. Um, nope. Anthony, I think you may have to um, shut down and restart your Hangouts uh, session. Sorry about that. Uh, we do not seem to have audio with you. Hey, at least we're creating our own uh, conversation and having a meaningful discussion here. Live TV nowadays consists of Anderson Cooper reading things from Twitter. So we're doing a bit better <laughs> than that. Um, yeah, so so governance is a, is a big part of this, right? Um, there is uh, really no perfect way to get everybody's opinion uh, to count. Is that what you were saying, Martin, just before I interrupted you? No, I mean, yeah, I, I just think I agree here with uh, with Charles that um, that we could have be better tools and we will have better tools soon. So tools like where you could actually put something at stake. Um, prediction markets, I mean, I'm, I'm building prediction markets in three years. I think they, they can be a great tool for, uh, for governance. Um, yeah, but again, there was big time pressure and I think uh, overall there was a wide variety of, of um, votes and, and getting sentiments of the community. And I think uh, it, so 80, 90% per, uh, of the existing community agreed to, to do the fork and the other ones um, were against it. But I think um, even most of them are now still joining um, ETH. So from the existing developer community, and from the existing projects, way more than 90% have um, clearly stated that they will stick to ETH. Yes, but that, uh, that doesn't cost anything to make that statement on Reddit. But if you look at uh, people who are putting their money behind their mouth, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's by committing uh, mining equipment or by buying the currency, um, ETC, uh, it's more like a 70-30. So, you know, you, you, which, which is more representative of stake in this particular case um, as to the decision? Um, I, the answer I heard from the community is it's all evil Bitcoin maximalists trying to destroy your party. <laughs> no, I, I, I would not see it um, that way. So, I mean, um, first, you indeed need like only spend a few million US dollar to um, <laughs> to get the price at the level uh, where it is. And I would say regarding the hash rate, the hash rate will follow the price. So if if the price is thirty percent of um, of uh, of ETH, uh, miners are just just economical, so they will. So the difficulty will also go up to thirty percent. Um, so yes, you can 
kind of influence the miners with um, buying ETC, uh, clearly. However, um, I'm not looking at short-term price swings. Um, I'm in for the long game and um, uh, and and for building stuff, and that will happen on ETH, so, as far as I can see. Well, um, I think it's a bit premature to say, oh, well, ETH is always going to be the dominant platform for people to build things. You know, the other issue is that you have made Ethereum effectively toxic in the long term for miners. You guys are going to proof of stake. There is no place for miners to live long term in that ecosystem. And from my conversations with the people at Ethereum Classic, especially some of the mining pools that are starting to make commitments to exclusively mine ETC, uh, they like the prospect of leaving Ethereum on, uh, on a proof-of-work based system or something along those lines. So I think it's too early to tell when one chain is just a few weeks old, uh, effectively, where the de developer community is going to move. The other thing that hasn't been mentioned here that should be is Rootstock. Um, Rootstock is coming. There's a lot of momentum. Uh, the Bitcoin space is very excited about it. And there's probably going to be some effort to start talking about cross-deployment, much like we do with PhoneGap. You use PhoneGap to deploy on multiple ecosystems. So I think a lot of people are going to start building tools to actually deploy on Rootstock as well as Ethereum. It would make no sense to just omit Ethereum Classic, especially if these systems are fairly similar to each other as they are right now. So I, I think it's, number one, way too early to tell where the uh, developer community is going to be long-term, especially considering how small it is. Uh, number two, uh, if Ethereum Classic chooses a mining-centric roadmap, there's a built-in constituency there that won't go away. Uh, and number three, there still is an open philosophical question if Ethereum Classic is going to stay the same as Ethereum or if it's going to diverge. And there's a lot of right now internal debate in the Ethereum Classic Slack about what the roadmap needs to look like. That's a really good point, and I'd like to uh, jump in briefly here and ask a follow-up question. We still have some minor technical problems with Anthony. I'm trying to bring him into the discussion as soon as possible. And Adam has rejoined us. Hi, Adam. Hey, everybody. Adam. Hello. Hey, so, uh, Charles, I actually had a quick question for you. So, um, we've seen Ethereum forked before. This is not the first fork of Ethereum to come out. There's one that comes to mind prominently called EXP. I think it's called Expanse. And right. they also were an ideological fork at the very beginning when Ethereum announced that they were going to do a pre-mine uh, as part of the funding uh, for the, the launch of the, the chain and the technology. So what's different about ETC compared to EXP that makes this chain viable while the, the earlier one wasn't? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, if I had to gamble and you know take a take a, a guess, because it's all speculation, right? Uh, I think the speculation would be that people put money behind a social contract. And when the Ether sale was done, there was an enormous amount of advertising about a paradigm of what Ethereum was. Now, some people obviously participated in that crowd sale from uh, perhaps a speculation standpoint. But most people, I'd like to believe, at least had some ideological alignment with the, uh, with the crowd sale. And so as a consequence, uh, I'd say that some subset of the people living in the Ethereum ecosystem really do take this code as law paradigm very seriously. Furthermore, there's two years of training wheels that have been put there. Gavin Wood was going around talking about illegality and inventing new words on the fly. There was a, a lot of meetup groups that this was really the core ideology that they were pushing through. So when you start tinkering with these things, um, it, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people. 
Whereas things like the pre-mine, that's kind of a different notion. If you didn't like that social contract, you wouldn't have put money into Ethereum or supported it to begin with. So it, you know, maybe a fork could happen, maybe not. Uh, it's hard to say, but th that's my my kind of armchair initial speculative guess about uh, about why this is more successful uh, than uh, than uh, other attempts. But you know, I could be wrong. Can hang I, on, I, hang I, on, I, Adam. I heard now. Hang on. Yes, let's bring Anthony in. I think it's working. Anthony, third time lucky. All right, it's working now. Thanks, Andreas. Mm -hmm. uh, I think disclosures need to be done first. Uh, uh, Ethereum founder as well. Uh, hold. Hold Ether, of course, I haven't split yet, so I still hold the classic. Uh, large DAO holder as well. Uh, and if we talk about the fork first, for me, it was, this is not a do-over. We don't get a second chance on this. wasn't beta. This wasn't a test. This was live. Now, perhaps it shouldn't have been. Perhaps it should have been tested. Perhaps there should have been a lot more done prior. I, I took a gamble in it. wasn't a substantial, like, it, it was, it was a, 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 a large amount, but it wasn't... Um, a large percentage of, of, of my ether holdings. It was, this is a great experiment. I thought, I thought it was, it was premature to actually put it in the way that it was done, but I think that we needed this experiment and that's what it was. And when it didn't go the way that people thought it would. And I, I think that I said, well, okay, well that, I guess I'm losing out on that thing that I was, that I was planning on doing. I'm losing out on that investment and hopefully things get learned and, and we move on. Um, that was my, that was my position. Of course, when it actually was consensus seemed to say, let's do it, I'm also a business person. And we have to think, well, am I going to take this hard stance? And no, I've always been about softer stances. We're, it's not about pure decentralization for me or about pure leadership. It's, it's a mixture of both. And it's going to take time and things to need to be done in stages. We can't go too extreme on the things, and that's what I think the Dow did. But I, I, I never would say I'm a pure decentralist, even though my brand is called Decentral. It's about taking baby steps, about doing things slowly. It's about using both sides to come together and learn from both. And I think with the chain, having two different groups and two different communities, I, my call is just to stop the polarization and just uh, see the benefits of having two chains. Is there benefits for us that we can learn? Could one be more sandbox? Like, like there's got to be benefits. And as a business owner, I have to also look at both sides. And it's not about you know, people say you have to pick one side or the other, and I just don't believe that. I really don't. I think that if I had to say one thing, immutability to me is something that's very dear to me. Consensus, democracy is something that needs to be worked on. To me, immutability should be at the forefront. But I see both sides, and I think we got to listen to both sides, and we have to 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 see for for us and, and for for the building of products. I want simplicity. It's very difficult to be introducing this stuff to the masses, which is where we want to take this, when every day it's getting more and more complex. And as, as a wallet operator, I have to say, well, do we institute ETC? Does that, will our other guys be mad? Uh, do we have to now have a split contract and give people choices and redevelop our whole way and look and feel to do this like we did with the DAO? We were getting very, very into the DAO. We were, we were starting to develop voting mechanisms inside of JAX to do this. And we learned from that because I think we jumped the gun. Now with the ETC, it's let's see how this plays out, but I, I'm not going to be forced into a one side or the other, and I have to make a choice. We're going to do what our customers want. We're going to do it hopefully in a way where we're learning for both sides. And I think the, the toxic uh, terms that, that are getting, that get used all the time need to be changed. That this was a, like, words like 
theft. And if you if this was a theft, you're siding with thieves, and that's it doesn't help. And I think there needs to just be a lot more understanding. We're so new in this that collaboration, cooperation, getting our main ideas, which is we're all into this technology. It's experimental. We need to grow it, and how do we most efficiently grow it and get rid of this sideshow that I've been seeing and 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 just push this idea forward so that we all have choice and we all have freedom using this technology and the ability to make the choices that we want without having to take either side. Yeah, one of the risks that I've discovered, Anthony, is uh, if you have a nuanced position, people accuse you of sitting on the fence and they throw rockets at you from both sides of the fence. Uh, yeah, but uh, you get comfortable with that position, right? There are simple answers to complex problems, and those answers are wrong. Um, and there are self-righteous and uh, unnuanced positions you can take. This is X. This is how it is. There is no other way. And those positions are usually wrong uh, or short-sighted. Um, I, I'm certainly comfortable with with uh, nuance, especially in an early stage situation like this. But Here's a question. You talked about complexity. Um, having two chains running in parallel, uh, that certainly creates a lot of complexity, especially of the user interface uh, with the idea of splitting and replay. Um, one of the comments I made is that not putting in replay defenses was a mistake. Uh, it, it created even more uncertainty than, than necessary. And not putting in some um, mechanism to clearly be able to identify which singleton you're running on. Uh, you know, a, a constant contract that exists only on one chain and doesn't exist on the other. That 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 would have made a huge uh, difference. So, um, where do we go from here? Martin's position is that it's better to just have one and to converge the network effect on that one. Martin, that's your position, but practically speaking, you can't force anyone to abandon ETC, and it doesn't look likely that it is going to be abandoned. Yeah. So you're right about the replay attacks. I think that even now people are from either side are saying, well, we're not going to do something to fix it. The other guy should be doing it. Well, we're not going to do something. The other guy should be fixing that. I think that's a pretty horrible statement as well. Uh, where do we go from here? We're gonna we're gonna see who 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 wins out the the companies yesterday many many of the app DAP companies in the space and Ethereum came out and said we're supporting it 100 percent we're supporting it 100 um, percent I guess we'll be able to see now even from that that uh, what power do they have and are people in this for those apps that are coming out or are people into this for the mining and the price and that's going to be an interesting test that's going to emerge I think as well is is what's the power of that going to be we saw the price increase because of that could that be a short term thing. I don't know. I think uh, for me, uh, I, I'm going to make decisions. I'm speaking from a business owner who's a blockchain company. I'm not an Ethereum company. I'm not a Bitcoin company. We're supporting Bitcoin. I'm supporting Ethereum. We've got Dash coming in next week. So I'm going to support them all. I'm going to support them all and let people make their choices. And that's what I'd like the people to do. And if one takes, one keeps going strong, the other whittles away, okay, that's fine. Um, we're going to support what our customers want. We're going to do it in a way that explains things very clearly as to why we're taking certain positions that we're going to take. And that's just going to have to be what's accepted. And if we lose customers with that, so be it. If we gain customers, that's fine. I think we need to be open and as tra transparent as possible and set our, our, our values and set where we're thinking and where we're going. And, and that's the best that we can do as a business. And that's what we're going to do. 
It, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm going to direct this question to uh, to Charles, and from your perspective, it seems to me that coins don't die. Um, the history of all of the cryptocurrencies we've seen, seven, eight hundred, a thousand plus have launched. Um, the only cryptocurrencies that have actually died are the ones where uh, the chain stopped working, and usually that was because of either a difficulty bomb or a 51% attack that crashed the difficulty retargeting or some other problem like that that caused the chain to stop, to grind to a halt. But as long as the chain is going, that currency has value. Maybe it's just a few pennies, but it still has value. Um, so some people have suggested that the only way to fix this is to attack ETC. I, I think that's a terrible idea, but what do you have to say about that? The old uh, old chains never die; they just fork away. Yes, <laughs> that should be a T-shirt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there was some initial conversation about doing it, like a fifty-one percent attack or DDoSing certain people, and um, there may have been some of that with Bitcoin Classic, if I recall um, properly. But uh, you know, the, the reality is that it's it's just talk until someone does it, and then uh, we we kind of evoke the old. Uh, evolutionary Darwinism of, uh, of, of cryptocurrencies, where we, we see what defenses they actually have within their community. And uh, what's really amazing to me is how resilient some of these systems tend to be. I mean, if we look at the history of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin itself has gone through some really terrible times. There was a, a particular flaw that had to be fixed, which allowed billions of Bitcoins to be created. Um, there were some forks that occurred along the way, and uh, you know, there's uh, certainly a lot of security problems that Circular Learner and others discovered, where they very quietly fixed them, um, you know, as, as some like bug fix. So I, I think that if somebody wants to attack ETC, they're just going to do it. Um, if the DAO hacker wants to liquidate all his or her coins, they're going to do it. Just like if Satoshi wants to liquidate his coins, he's going to do it, uh, and uh, we just move on. And the strength of the ecosystem is the strength of the community. So if they're unified behind an ideology and they're unified behind a vision and a roadmap and they believe really firmly in it, they'll walk through broken glass to get it done, as the Bitcoin community has done over the last few years. Uh, so that's really, the, I think, the great first challenge of ETC is that it's not going to, in my view, be killed from the outside. It's either going to survive or be killed based upon whether the community uh, in ETC unifies behind something. Right now, it's fragmented, and it's only unified behind anger over this fork. They felt like they weren't consented, and they're just really pissed off. And it doesn't help when uh, Mihai says, Ethereum troll cave or something like that. And it doesn't help when Vitalik posts things like, well, even if ETC wins, I'm never going to work on it. These are divisive statements, and I've made some myself. Yeah, so, speaking about that, and I'm going to switch to you, Martin, um, the, the, the point you made also is the network effect really relates more to the community and the developers and the applications that are uh, built than anything else. What we saw was... Uh, a few months ago, uh, a lot of people in Ethereum were saying, we have no governance problems, we have no scale problems, come here, Bitcoiners, escape from the vitriol and nastiness of the RBTCR Bitcoin um, split. Uh, last week, we saw for the first time uh, moderators within the uh, Ethereum Reddit censoring uh, posts about doing a 51% attack on Classic, uh, saying those kinds of um, attacks should not be promoted within Ethereum. 
Uh, at the same time, we've seen a split, and there is a whole Ethereum Classic Reddit, and the community is now pretty much in the same position. Fortunately, not yet as much vitriol as a protracted two-year battle over block size has created in Bitcoin. Um, are you worried about censorship, community forking, um, attacks, personal attacks, vitriol, and, and these things emerging in the Ethereum community? A um, little bit, of course. Um, but uh, regarding to those those statements um, of uh, Vitalik, um, for example, sticking clearly to um, ETH, I think it's just um, a rational thing to do. So essentially, um, cryptocurrencies are coordination games. So if you get enough people to coordinate on something, if you build a big enough uh, community, then it has value. Um, otherwise, it has not. So it's not, I mean, of course, te technology is a big point of it, but community is, is even bigger. So otherwise, all those Bitcoin clones were just as good as Bitcoin. Of course, they are not because they don't have the community. So and that's, that's what, what happened in the last, um, in the last days. Um, that the, the existing ETH community is re reassuring each other that they stick together as a community and that they go forward as a community. And so that was the reason why yesterday all over Reddit you saw this, we, we stick to um, ETH. And I think, again, at, at this point, well, it you, makes you, a lot of Martin, sense. Martin, we, we saw that all over the Ethereum Reddit. We did not see that all over the Ethereum Classic Reddit, because they're just aren't too much uh, developers that, that uh, do it for classics. It's, I mean, that's how simple it is. And Martin, if in 2012, before seeing the white paper, everything was Bitcoin. For me, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, and that Ethereum opened eyes for me to so much more beyond that. For me to have made a statement or something about Bitcoin at that time, saying, I'm all Bitcoin, I'm only working on Bitcoin, would never have opened my eyes or my doors to, to new things emerging. And that's maybe what some of these decisive, divisive uh, positions actually might lead to in the future, where there's, there's just, it, it closes off things to make that, that, that just a statement like that, I think uh, you, can, you can say, yes, that's against, against ETC if that's what they're referencing, but are they referencing other technologies too? I'm very excited, as you mentioned about rootstock, I'm excited about other things coming out. Uh, it's it, 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 it to me it doesn't seem like a common sense for me to, to make a, so a statement like that the, there will be nothing else and that's all I will only do this okay I think that's that's not what most uh, what most did but I think there needs to be a balance between diversity and and um, um, yeah bundling bundling things together so if you have too much diversity and no none of the projects get a certain scale, that, uh, that, that, that if you have no diversity, that also also. And I would say, uh, current currently ETC and ETH are too too close together to 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 um, justify the split of the community. If uh, Charles, you just mentioned, if for example, uh, ETC would um, decide to stick to to proof of work or kind of differentiate uh, itself bigger from Ethereum, uh, then I would welcome that, actually. Uh, but, but currently, at this point, when, when you have two almost the same thing, then I would say better stick to one. Well, but with all due respect, how can we work together when one side uh, is saying things like pump and dump, uh, troll cave, these guys are just supporters <laughs> well, of I mean, 
it, I mean, it's going you, both ways, though, too, though. I, I understand it goes both ways. ways. But, I mean, somebody has to be the bigger man. And, Shut you know, Shut I think there's tangible value to having people come together and say, listen, they're probably not going to go away. There's a, around a $200 million market cap. There's a sizable mining support base. And with all due respect to developers, they're coming. I'm hiring three full-time developers myself. And I have many cryptographers and good developers working for me. Take a look at our GitHub repo. Look at Scorex. Look at our RS coin implementation in Haskell. We will have developers within our space very soon. We already have a lot of volunteer developers within our Slack. There's 500 people in the Slack, and it's grown like wildfire. And a lot of people who are entering Ethereum Classic are coming actually from the Bitcoin space or from other altcoins. Oh, so, that's great. So if, if, you, if you build a new community coming from, uh, uh, from people coming from the Bitcoin space, awesome, awesome. But I think cool. the, the, those who stick to uh, Ethereum, I think most will, uh, or uh, um, those who were building stuff on Ethereum, most will continue to build stuff on Ethereum. Well, both sides should, side should be trying to, to uh, take, take, it up or take a better stand and say, when you're hearing those things that are the garbage, are the noise, Sitting here right now, it's a position Ethereum always used to take. We we when we were dealing with 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 others when when we started surging, we would start getting these 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 callouts, and we would never respond to anything like that. We would always in the communities, the Reddit's, it would always be very civil. This is this is until recently very civil. Very we're it's it's better. It's we're not like that. We're not going to do that. So if both sides can start pushing aside when that stuff happens. That that toxic stuff. If you could each say as a leader in your sides, we don't accept that. We don't agree with, with that. We have our differences of opinions, but that's not what we're about. That's not the community that we want to have ETC or ETCH start looking like. And, and I think that's what I find very, very disturbing is I'm seeing, seeing that change that's happening. And that was never the case with Ethereum, in my opinion. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's because there, you didn't have a quarter of a million uh, dollars, uh, or sorry, 200, a quarter of a billion dollars at stake or more and when you have stake, you have contention, and when you have contention, out comes the vitriol and the trolls. That's almost and leaders. Leaders let them let them get get a certain certain stance that that we're just not gonna not gonna 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 put up. I think that's that. a that's a great idea, and it's admirable from my experience. Even though I've had uh, many uh, people in the Bitcoin space during the scaling debates from both sides of the aisle call for civility, call for um, a reduction in, in personal attacks and vitriol and all of that. The end result is the trolls don't really go away. Uh, part of that is just a matter of uh, growing up and you will have a certain percentage of that. I've got a follow-up question for all three of you. Um, not many people know this, especially outside of the Ethereum developer space. Ethereum has a difficulty bomb and that difficulty bomb was set in place um, in order to push the system into proof of stake within a year or so. Um, so let me first explain what that is for our audience and then let me get questions because this means this has some very important implications for the road forward. So uh, in uh, Bitcoin, the difficulty is retargeted every two weeks so that one value stays constant and that is the block issuance time of 10 minutes. Um, Ethereum doesn't quite do that. Uh, there's a 15 second uh, block issuance timing, uh, but 
over time, the difficulty inflates on purpose so as to make it less and less and less profitable to mine with proof of work with the idea that about a year out, it becomes untenable to sustain proof of work. And at that point, a hard fork will be necessary. And that hard fork can go one of two ways. It can either diffuse the difficulty bomb um, and reset the difficulty for proof of work to continue, uh, postponing proof of stake forever or postponing it temporarily, or that hard fork will switch the system to proof of stake. Either way, within a year, both Ethereum and Ethereum Classic must do another hard fork each. Um, so where do we end up? Ethereum Lite, Ethereum Zero, Ethereum Classic, Ethereum New, um, are we going to split into eight Ethereum A? Ethereum A? Right. What happens next? Martin, do you want to take the difficulty bomb on the Ethereum side? Right. So um, I don't know yet. I mean, it depends on uh, whether or not a proof of stake is at that point. Um, so the goal is clearly to switch to proof of stake. Whether or not we are ready in a year, or I think it's a little bit more than a year, that's open. I mean, I, I just don't know. Um, it's likely, or it's it's quite likely, that there will be a, a period of having both, having a mixture of, of, of proof of stake and proof of work. Uh, but clearly, um, the long-term goal is to switch to proof of stake as early as possible. And this difficulty bomb was, I mean, that was, it's, it's not really necessary to do the switch, but it was kind of seeing the Bitcoin world and and well then kind of re we realized it would be good to put ourselves under pressure kind of so to not say well we just will we'll get along so to, to kind of have a point where we need to where we need to have do something at least um so to at least have some kind of progress <laughs> okay so um uh, charles from your perspective uh ethereum classic also has the difficulty bomb of course um but it hasn't even a different problem, which is that 14% of classic is in the hands of the, uh, potentially, in the hands of the DAO attacker. Um, do you anticipate going to proof of stake? Do you anticipate uh, forking to defuse the difficulty bomb? Is that completely up in the air? You, you mentioned discussion about this on the Ethereum Classic Slack. Right. Well, I mean, there's some house cleaning that needs to be done. Like, we, we need to do something to resolve the replay attack. There was a lack of foresight in hard fork. Um, so that needs to be taken care of. And then there's also the question of the difficulty bomb. You know, there is a, uh, at, at, at IOHK side, we do have a proof of stake algorithm we're just finishing uh, formalization of with security proofs based on the GKL15 model. So we'll be publishing that mid-August. So we could certainly advocate that, um, but we still need to do some peer review once it's published to see if it's viable or not. And I'm not sure where Casper's at. I get very scared of um, protocols, especially consensus algorithms that are designed in an ad hoc manner. Um, so I would advocate for removal of the difficulty bomb and a transition to a hybrid algorithm that uses both proof of work and proof of stake. Uh, there's a really good one that came out of VCU uh, just recently. It was published July 22nd, and it's based on the GKL model, which is kind of the gold standard for making these things secure. But it's a good question. And the problem is I'm not a leader in the Ethereum Classic community. I'm just a follower. I joined. I don't speak for the community. I have my own personal opinions, and we'll hire some developers to try to move us in a particular direction. But if we don't reach social consensus, it's going to be very difficult for Ethereum Classic to coalesce around a particular vision or roadmap. 
So that's the first great challenge to see whether Ethereum Classic survives or not. Going back to my prior statement of, will an outside attack kill Ethereum Classic? Probably not. If it's going to die, it's going to die as a result of the difficulty bond debate as well as um, some of the other house cleaning. But it's a good opportunity. Go ahead. Every community is going to have its uh, governance tested going forward because of this uh, difficulty bomb. Anthony, from your perspective, working as you said, as a blockchain company that's doing development in this space, um, whether you support Ethereum Classic or not within your Jax wallet or other platforms you're building, um, what does this mean for the level of complexity and the user interface and the difficulty of developing applications as the platforms may fragment even further? So we're, we're developing hardware that is hopefully going to be including mining. I think the POS is going to take long, much longer than, than we think. I think this may be another good case for the two chains where perhaps the ETC does uh, negate the, the bomb and decide to go on the proof of work path. Perhaps Ethereum decides to go on the POS. Perhaps that's another reason to have them. I think the, the reason of it, and I think it was put in place for, for, for a good reason, which was, again, trying to uh, negate the, the centralization of mining that we've seen in Bitcoin, along with other things that, have been, that were done, like G- GPU mining, the, uh, the potential for algorithmic changes, things like that. And that's the reason why the bomb was put in place. Um, it does question me about... Uh, I see it differently for working on the platform and doing good for the platform itself if changes potentially be made. Uh, my whole thing with the non-fork was not doing it since an app caused an issue, and that, that, that's always been my, my stance on that. You're not going to change things because change a protocol that has not had an issue because of a faulty app. Uh, that's my stance. So perhaps this could be another place as to why there might be a good reason to have two chains going forward. Perhaps there's some testing, sandboxing, things that can potentially be done on one side or another that will enable... Uh, benefits of both to come together and form a much stronger system down the road. All right. I think we've uh, we've covered all of the questions I had. Uh, I don't know if Stephanie has any other questions. All right. Uh, we're going to... Um, no, maybe... Go ahead, Andreas. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, Adam, you're back. Uh, maybe you have some questions for us. We were uh, getting to the point of almost wrapping up. We, we just talked about the difficulty bomb. Yeah, I actually do have a couple of questions. I apologize for continuing to drop out here. My technology is really failing me today. Um, you know, if we've already asked this, then stop me. But Martin, you're building a prediction market. You know, a prediction type uh, application. And that is, in a lot of parts of the world, legally contentious. So one of the things that, so like, there's been kind of two sides to the to the immutability argument, um, and one of them has been about kind of the censoring of things that are not possible, but that might not be legally um, sort of uh, permissible in the current environment. So given that you're in support of the ETH chain, uh, can you kind of talk to us about any concerns you have about that, or if you don't have concerns, why? Oh, I I don't have concerns. Um, and I think that that's, in my, my opinion, one of the big uh, mis- misconceptions is, I mean, I, of course, I understand the argument. You say, well, you forked once, then uh, can you fork for, um, for things like censoring a prediction market? Um, and you have to understand how, how difficult it is to fork or how difficult, I mean, so it's, it's not like three or four people are are um, saying, okay, let's do it, or you could put three or four people under pressure and, and, and then they do it. You really have to convince the whole community, so or at least 80, 90%. Um, 
you really have to convince 80-90% of the community that that is the right thing. So I think kind of a false, um, a false negative will, will never happen. So there will be a lot of cases where there is clear theft, theft and it will be not reverted. And, um, and, and you might think that is, that, is, that is unfair, but what will really not happen is that there is something that should not be reverted and that will be um, reverted. I see no okay. chance that, that uh, 80, 90% uh, community would, would agree to that. So I think that um, an important kind of point in this is who is considered the community, because that's kind of a contentious issue. And when I've talked to some friends at, uh, who work at Consensus, you know, the response has been, we voted on this, and everybody, you know, everybody had their opinion heard. There was a period of time when this happened. And my response to that was, I hold a lot of Ether, not a lot of Ether, but I hold Ether, and uh, I didn't vote. Like, I wasn't aware that there was a vote going on, so I feel like I'm pretty plugged in, and I don't feel like that was something, and so that's one side of it. And then the other side of it is that I don't think that my vote even really matters. I think that the, the votes that matter are the exchanges and then the mining pools. And so if you look at it from that perspective, then sure, maybe you've got 80 or 90% of the people on board with that. But that also means, and this is a conversation we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, so with Bitcoin, if you wanted to undo this in the way that it's been undone, you would have to unroll all of the transactions. And so it would be very inconvenient for the entire network. And so because of that, you have the type of protection that you're talking about where you say, well, 80 or 90% of people aren't going to agree to that. And so it's not, you know, you're never going to see something like that happen. But in, I, I would argue that in Bitcoin, a lot of that is because it would be a painful, really inconvenient experience for, all, for everybody because everything has to be rolled back. Well, with sorry, am I wrong? Uh, well, so actually, actually, uh, I, I have, um, so, so there has been very active discussions to roll back the Bitfinex hack. And it actually, it would not have been so difficult. So what you need to do is uh, you need to, I mean, you need to get within 12 or 24 hours, um, more than 50% of the miners to agree yes. on that. And and then you kind of double spend a single transaction, this, this is the, the, the Bitfinex, uh, and, and then you replay just all other transactions. So in the end, uh, after 24 hours, you have a, so kind of, you can, for 24 hours, the network is kind of DDoS, so no transactions are possible because you have to first to replay all transactions so far. But after 24 hours, you are in a state that is exactly the same. Um, so it's not like you all all the um, if, if someone spends money on an exchange that 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 would all be double spent. That's not the case, uh, and you have a state then that is exactly the same, except this um, uh, Bitfinex thing. I, I disagree. Sorry, Martin. I disagree with your analysis there. Um, in order to do that, first of all, a 50% attack would not be sufficient because if you if you did, say, a 55% attack, mm -hmm. you, you, you would have to replay 144 blocks in the time uh, it takes for the other part of the chain to do 144 blocks. So uh, you would actually, it would, it would take you three days to replay one days of transactions to the point where you exceeded the original chain. That is, if you were able to sustain a 55 to 60% attack for three days. Meanwhile, you would have to, during this time, expend 500 megawatts of electricity continuously at full cost with zero reward, because presumably all of these miners have already received the reward for that one day, 
Um, And therefore, when replaying it, they're not getting any extra reward. Now it's costing them 500 megawatts of electricity or approximately 10% of their monthly bill. Uh, In order to do all of this, that's for the miners replaying the 55 to 60% uh, attack. If you were able to actually get 60% of the miners to waste 10% of their monthly electricity budget, and this is why thermodynamically guaranteed proof of work um, is much harder to do. You, 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 it's a lot of blocks. It's super easy to get them to do that. I mean, it's it's 12.5 Bitcoin per block. So in, in, in the heck, um, 100, more than 100,000 Bitcoins would uh, are, are stolen. So if you pay 5,000 of those Bitcoins, that's way more uh, than you can totally cover those. Right, right. Those, of uh, course, if I'm the attacker, I'm going to give uh, 20% of my Bitcoin to the other 40 uh, percent of the mining hashing power as a direct reward by spending it in fees and double spent transactions that, that burn enormous fees, which are a direct uh, incentive to the other 40% of the miners or more, if I can get them through bribery. Maybe I only want to get uh, 10 cents on the dollar for my theft. I'm willing to burn 90% of that money in fees. It's not as easy as you make it sound, Martin. Uh, it it, it goes into a game theoretical situation where there will be more contention. And if you drag this out, because of course the attacker is going to be bribing the rest of the miners, it's not going to take three days. So you're going to DDoS the entire network for a week, maybe longer. Uh, The costs really do ramp up very quickly. Okay, so I come back to my initial point. You actually need 80, 90% of the community or maybe 95% and then it works. And that's how, how it was done in Ethereum. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, and you would not get that in Bitcoin. It's a very different uh, sure, sure. That's, attitude. It's possible, but I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I mean, I'm saying it's not kind of, it's not too much a technical difference. It's its maybe a community difference. But well, also in, dif- in Bitcoin, if you get 90% of the community to agree on a hut or on, on kind of reverting a transaction, you can do it. Yes, for about a day. Um, of course, UTXO gets uh, really complicated once you start spending it and touching other transactions. Actually, it's 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 even simpler with the UTXO model because kind of you have this one uh, unspent transaction output and and every everything behind this uh, transaction output is is invalid. While in Ethereum, you kind of have mixing by default. So so if you if you um, put in one Ether to another account, um, it's it's it, it's it's kind of by default mixed. So actually, the fungibility in Ethereum uh, is higher. So from that perspective. Um, it's it's more difficult in Ethereum, well, and it was kind of just lucky that the that the coins were locked in 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 this in the thirty day thing. So if if they wouldn't have been locked, then in Ethereum, uh, all you could do is roll back all transactions. But you uh, there was not an op- there would have not been an option to kind of only target this transaction. Okay, we did go on a bit of a tangent there, um, Adam. Back to you. Okay. So well, well. So that was actually quite that was quite educational. I think. Um, I'm. Uh, so maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe there isn't the type of specificity that I thought that you could achieve in in you know censoring transactions with uh, with. Uh. So, anyways, my my primary concern is that if you don't have to roll back everything, then it's not inconvenient for the entire network. And so it's much easier to pick out the group of specific people, whether they be exchanges or they be mining pools that you can actually pressure in order to do that. And, you know, I, I'm just, so it, so anyways, it, I, I guess you've, you've. No, oh, Adam, we lost you again. Um, 
I think I knew, we know what he was saying was he basically if you if if it is easier to do, you may see it getting utilized more often. And I think that's the point that he's that he's trying to make uh, because yeah, it's easier. I, I, would to say, I would say it's not easier to do. So I'm going to disagree a bit with Adam there, and and maybe you you can all uh, chime in here. This if 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 you're a lawyer and you want to take a case to court, you want the the perfect defendant, right, or the perfect plaintiff um, who is clearly aggrieved. Uh, where morally everybody's on your side. I mean, come on, this was a Dow attack that affected 25,000 investors. The attacker is bad, bad person and must be uh, have all of their money taken from them. Um, morally, ethically, in terms of narrative and story, this was the perfect candidate to promote this kind of reversal. And yet, uh, even if you were able to get approximately an 80-20 split in the initial fork, eventually it swung back and now you have a holdout in the form of Ethereum Classic. We couldn't even do it with a perfect candidate. Um, how could you possibly do it when you're talking about censoring a prediction market or, or something like that? Yeah. I'm, I, I, it doesn't worry me at all. It yeah, doesn't right. worry me at all. And, and, um, and actually, uh, I mean, on the prediction market, so so usually, uh, as, as as soon as you'll speak longer than an hour um, uh, with someone about prediction markets, and this topic of assassination markets will will come up. And I, I feel kind of good that if there's a big a big agreement uh, in the community to to censor that market, then let's do it. So I think um, uh, blockchain is kind of empowering people um, and. <laughs> And empowering communities, and if the community wants to we can do something, get, we can get rid of the censorship-proof part of the on the foundation website as well. Then now, if that's the way yeah. that's uh, immutability, yeah, I mean, uh, unstoppable apps, uh, censorship-proof, all those things that uh, what it was standing for, that would definitely be cutting into that if that was the approach. We're going to have six wolves and four sheep voting on what's for dinner. Uh, I'm sorry, there are certain principles that ought to be immutable, and uh, pe people do take these things very seriously. As is the debate between you and, and Andreas exposed, it's really, really expensive and hard to try to do even simple rollbacks with Bitcoin. And that's this good. Is, that's, this is one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so incredibly valuable and why the community is so strong and has been able to endure so much pain and conflict. And I, I argue that a large chunk of the value of these systems come from either explicitly stated or unspoken social contract that they advocate. So if you say, let's build a community that's censorship resistant and it is neutral to the code that's written, you have to stick by that. You have to advocate that. And if you come in and say, well, sometimes we can censor, sometimes we can reverse things, sometimes we can give people their money back. It's extreme simple rule. If the very big commun uh, um, majority of the community agrees to something, to, to change something or to revert why something, then why not revert to a new chain and have an 80% or 90% threshold and all the money leaves and you go to a new chain? That way, 100% of the people agreed who are in the new chain. They actually destroyed well, their. That, that, that's kind of what we did. I mean, we are now on a new chain. No, you guys didn't do that. You just did a, a basically a, a hard fork. Yeah, that is creating a new chain. So now you have the replay attack as a result. You know, it's it's a different situation. You did a poll to justify something you wanted to do, 
and that's okay. And you, the poll came out to be right uh, for you guys, and you went and forked it, and now a resistance is forming. Who knows where it's going to go, but this is not healthy for the ecosystem. And another thing that concerns me is I was in Lviv in Ukraine with Vlad, I think it was last year, yeah, BIP, and he shows this roadmap, and there's like five hard forks you guys have in the roadmap. And, and so this is a simple, and Andreas is right, morally justified, oh, my God, if you could, you could invent a better scenario for justifying forking the protocol, you can't get one. And it should be non-controversial, yet it is. And now you're walking into proof of stake and scalability improvements and improvements to the EVM and so forth. And there doesn't seem to me to be an appreciation for the process of this or understanding that you're leaving some of your community behind every time you make a step and fork the protocol. It seems to be uh, almost like, uh, trust us, we know what's best, uh, we'll figure it I, out. And I think that is currently exactly what makes the value of Ethereum. So, so we have this conservative system, Bitcoin, and that's great, absolutely great. And we have this less conservative system, Ethereum, that is willing to make changes and that is willing to make change um, and go forward even if uh, this would mean you lose part, part no of the community. So, yeah, so, no, I, so just one, one second there, because um, in addition to what you just said, Martin, uh, one of the propositions, as Charles pointed out, is that uh, we have, at least in theory, we have the possibility of something like Rootstock implementing uh, Ethereum-type uh, virtual machines but with the immutability and resistance to hard forks that you have seen demonstrated in the Bitcoin community. So in the end, this is simply a matter of finding the best fit for a chain that is strongly immutable versus a chain that is driven more rapidly, perhaps has a higher rate of innovation and change um, through a simple consensus mechanism and majority voting mechanism. It's not just classic that offers that option, really. Yeah. Go ahead, Martin. Uh, no, I mean, so again, if if there is um, um, a separation that is kind of big enough on Ethereum, I, I'm totally in favor of what, what those guys in, in Rootstock are doing. So, um, of course. So, so, I mean, Rootstock is kind of a different world than, uh, than Ethereum is. You're taking your money in Bitcoin, which lives in one trust model and social contract, and you're handing it over to a federated network. And that network is going to have the benefits of efficiency, and it's going to have a, a lot of uh, other things like perhaps faster transaction times, et cetera, et cetera. There's a beautiful things you can do once you enter federation land from decentralization land. And that's effectively a control layer, and that's, that has a philosophy behind it. You can have it be anonymous, you can put a legal topology into it, you can do a lot of cool things once you enter a control layer overlay model, and you can have multiple versions corresponding to different social contracts and different use cases. But it's important to point out that the trust guarantees in the social contract of Bitcoin doesn't necessarily follow as you move into the, the overlay protocol. So I will disagree a little bit saying that Rootstock offers the same value proposition as Bitcoin. I think it offers a different value proposition, in some cases a superior one, but it is not exactly the same. Uh, if you want an immutable network, you're going to have to sit with Ethereum Classic and to a lesser extent with Ethereum. Right, so uh, I think the, the point you're making, Charles, and to explain to the less technical audience what you're saying, is the, the, the really um, special thing about 
um, any type of native asset within the primary layer of the consensus network is that every action on that native asset is validated through the consensus mechanism. Right. Uh, that's the Bitcoin transaction. If you make an overlay network uh, through merged mining, as is, I believe, the current proposal for Rootstock, you're not validating the consensus, the consensus layer of Bitcoin, which has the enormous investment in, in electricity and mining hardware, is not validating the EVM stack of, of the additional layer, at least not with its full power of the consensus mechanism. Ethereum is, Ethereum Classic is, so it's a slightly different uh, approach. Right, and, I, and in some cases it's a superior approach because you can put in a regulatory model like automated tax compliance and other things into that system and then you can have consumer choice where they can decide which control layer they want to go to and you can instantiate multiple versions. And that's, uh, that I think is, is kind of the government friendly way of moving uh, for some applications. Uh, so, so it's just important to point that out. Sorry. I think I think uh, what we've discovered is that no one on this panel is a maximalist of any kind. Uh, everybody has the ability to coexist with multiple other uh, chains. I, I'd like to go back to Anthony, who's playing the role of the pragmatist here. You're looking at this discussion involving um, potentially some options between a chain that is dominated by a majority consensus approach may move a bit faster and a chain that is more conservative and more strongly immutable. Um, how does that affect your decisions in what you develop for and how do you look at what the market is telling you? So what we decided to do, especially after the DAO situation, we, we realized we jumped the gun and started doing a lot of work on DAO integrations and we've learned from that and we're now uh, going to continue on with our development paths is basically what we're going to do. The things that we've had even before ETC came about, we have a certain path that we've lined up. We're going to keep looking to see what's going on. Uh, people are asking us, you know, I've got Ether in my account, what do I, how do I get my ETC? And we're directing them to services and places where they can then remove it out of, out of JAX and split it and bring them back into JAX if they want and keep their ETC somewhere else. That's how we're helping out our customers right now. We're letting them knowing that we're still just be evaluating things. And we're going to just, just be, we're going to, we're going to allow ourselves to make our decisions and we're going to then back up those decisions and carry things out. So it's, we've got a short-term dev schedule. We're going to keep going out that and then we'll see if this comes into play a little bit more, what we're going to decide to do, but we're not taking a hard stance on anything one way or the other. All right, let's, uh, let's wrap things up and go into any final statements. I think we've come for an hour and a half. Mar Martin, why don't you? Oh, yeah, I, I, had a question. I had a question for you, but uh, I, I'm not for sure. Me your time well sure go ahead so I mean um, I, I, I get this argument you should not do a hard fork for um, things that run on top of the blockchain and only if, if there's a protocol back in the blockchain like it was in Bitcoin I mean what pretty pretty obvious you need to you needed to do a hard fork at that, that point so but but now let's let's assume uh, we get something on top of Bitcoin like in the lightning network and let's assume now 10% of all Bitcoins are in there, or maybe 20, or maybe 50, or maybe 80%. So um, let's say 60% of all Bitcoins would be in Lightning Network contracts, and then it turns out there's a bug in those contracts. I think it's a clearly, uh, you can let, so you have two options, you let the community die, or you fork, and you kind of uh, rescue it. So, or I mean, if you have a different opinion, uh, please, please go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really uh, good point. And so 
the question is, uh, would we um, go and put 15% of all of Bitcoin into the very first version of Lightning Network within two weeks of creating it uh, with a fully oh, that, that, complete contract? I think not. It's a very bad decision. There's no question about it. So, right, I mean, exactly. Well, well at the very least, we can watch and learn from that uh, decision. I think there is a certain value to the fact that the Bitcoin scripting language, through its simplicity, has a lower propensity to have unanticipated bugs. That's simply a fact. A stack-based, non-Turing-complete language will exhibit fewer bugs um, than a full Turing-complete language. Different, different use cases, of course. Um, so I'm less worried about uh, a specific implementation of Lightning Network where the consensus rules are executed for every Lightning Network uh, transaction on all of the channel state. Um, I, I'm less worried we're going to see a massive bug, but you're absolutely right. If 60% of the value of Bitcoin was in Lightning Network when we discovered a bug that destroyed that value, we we would probably hard fork. Um, and I, I think you'd, you'd see that uh, happen. Uh, the same thing applies if there is a, a uh, you know, if we find that uh, ECDSA or SHA-256 or one of That's the other core cryptographic algorithms. Um, and guess what would happen if we did fork? Uh, 20, 30, 40% of the network would refuse to do so, and we would have a Bitcoin classic situation on our hands. Uh, it would be even stronger in the case of Bitcoin, uh, and I think that's why it's been so difficult to arrive at a conclusion. All right, anyway, so that was my answer to your question, Martin. Let's do some uh, final, final points. Um, Charles. Um. My hope for my participation in the uh, Ethereum Classic community is, is going to be basically trying to get them to coalesce around a social contract and get a reasonable roadmap put in place, attach some developers to it, and view it as an experiment. It's really a great opportunity, actually, for everybody in the space. We're getting an answer of what happens when you have a split of community and you have a chance to follow kind of two different paths and A-B test ideas that that to me uh, from an academic standpoint is is tremendously valuable and i'm going to try to pursue that furthermore my hope is that we can kind of tone down uh, moving forward the uh, the vitriol and the uh, the anger between both communities i mean people got their money back the dow hacker uh, was refunded on the ethereum mainnet and uh, everybody got a bunch of free ether classic and it's an opportunity for us to kind of view it like open office and libre office reset and uh, go about our own way and try to accomplish something productive for everybody. And I, I hope that's what ends up happening. Furthermore, it's a great data point for Bitcoin itself. At some point, Bitcoin is going to have to start making some hard decisions about its future and where it wants to go and what it wants to be. And it would be really nice if we can get some evidence from Ethereum Classic and Ethereum you know, over a long arc of what are the consequences of having these types of splits and uh, it ultimately I think will give us more confidence moving forward when we have to make those hard decisions. That's a great point Charles. Uh, Anthony? We're going to continue providing I think products that the masses can start can use that's really what my focus on everything's for developers right now our focus is to provide the interface for blockchain whether it be ether whether it be other ones and it's also to provide more robustness in what we call relay services or nodes basically that wallets use in order to push transactions, show balances, all those things. There's a lack of them out there and we wanna, we're coming up with strategies on how we can improve the infrastructure and I think that involves collaboration. A lot of work, you know, we're talking with the mycelium guys, we're talking with the guys from Exodus and we're seeing how we can each come together and start helping each other out and, and not uh, do the same things that, that like, like add, add redundancy 
the services and see how we can actually not uh, um, uh, we can work on different projects and then and then bring those together that we can add a add strength to the different networks that we're going to be working on in the future. So I really call for more collaboration. Really call for less toxicity and. I uh, just want to keep providing these, these providing products and services that everybody's going to use and enjoy and get this out to the masses. Last but not least, Charles. Uh, sorry. Martin. Martin. Sorry. <laughs> Incorrect <laughs> order. Martin. Oh, do you want to go again? No. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, I'm honestly happy to see that um, most of the developers and the projects um, continue to build on each DH because Again, I think we haven't even started to to get the positive network effects of having one. I mean, we haven't even one DApp that's really working on Ethereum, and it, it, it gets interesting if there are multiple um, DApps that interact with with each other. And if we are at that stage, then in my opinion, we could ha think about different chains um, running the uh, Ethereum virtual machine and how they could work nicely together so that, that would be my roadmap however if ethereum classic is there of course they should they should <laughs> i mean they should do whatever they like that there's no question about that but i would kind of suggest carefully uh, it would be in my opinion more valuable if they differentiate them further so for example saying we will stick to proof of work and th th that uh, that would that would otherwise i i don't see uh, too much value if two things are too close together and um then I, I would see the loss of network effect would be bigger than the value of having diversity. Well, thank you all for participating. This has been a special edition of uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin, LTB Live, uh, specifically talking about Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic, the concepts of consensus and immutability. I'd like to thank our three special guests today, uh, Charles Hoskinson, Anthony Diorio, Martin Koppelman, thank you so much for participating in this special edition of LTB. And Thanks, also guys. our host, Stephanie Murphy. And Andreas, thank you so much. You did a great job. And Adam, the discussion. And Adam, who uh, unfortunately had some connectivity issues and wasn't able to moderate, but came in with some great questions, especially towards the end. Uh, that's and all. Put this all today. together. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, uh, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. The magic word for today's episode is CARD. That's C-A-R-D. CARD. And speaking of which, if you're someone interested in creating your own online collectible card game using swappable tokens, I'd like to speak with you pretty much as soon as possible. Whether you're an existing game company with games on the market or have the next big thing brewing in your head, I've got some interesting solutions. Contact me at adam at tokenly.com to learn more. That's it for this time. See you next week.